0: This is Sarah Bordaev, and you are listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. We took a bit of a hiatus from the Summit Series to bring you our special huddle mini-series, which you can listen to right here on PodSAM, but today we're back. This year, SAM welcomed 10 mentors and 10 mentees to the program to share in six conversations about the past, present, and future of the mountain resort industry. In this six-episode run, we'll be sharing those conversations here on PodSAM and in the pages of SAM Magazine. On this episode, we talk about problem-solving and strategic thinking with David Perry, Executive Vice President of Altera Mountain Company, Amy Aran, President and General Manager of Boreal Mountain in Soda Springs, California, and Hiram Toll, General Manager of Mount Ashland, Oregon. When we first held this conversation in November of 2019, we had no idea how much the industry and the world would change come spring, and how strongly the insights shared by the three mentors would resonate amid the COVID-19 crisis. We highlighted this conversation in the May issue of Sam Magazine, which you can check out at www.saminfo.com. If you listen to Summit Series episodes before, which you definitely should, You know this audio is derived from actual conference calls, so there is the standard call interference and the occasional bit of construction, but it's totally worth it. With that, we'll hand it off to SAM publisher, Olivia Rowan.
1: Welcome, and uh, on, on today's Summit Series call, we're going to be talking about problem solving and strategic thinking. And um, this is something we definitely do daily in our roles operating ski areas. So um, an important topic for us to dive into today. Uh, we have three industry leaders joining us today to share their stories with our 10 mentees. These mentees represent resorts from all sizes and regions. Um, and we encourage folks um, listening to visit our Summit Series website to learn more about these next-gen leaders. Um, I'm going to hand the microphone off now to our facilitator, Paul Towner who is the CEO and founder of High Peaks Group. And this is a consulting firm, helping organizations tackle workplace challenges. Um, He's been our facilitator since the uh, start of the summit series. We can't thank him enough. He helps us with our other program, Peak Navigator, and and also um, doing some leadership um, activities. So Paul, handing it off to you.
2: Thanks so much, Olivia. Welcome everybody. Really excited to be with you today. talking about problem solving and strategic thinking. And one problem uh, we're going to solve right now is to make sure that all of the mentees can put a voice to the name uh, of our mentors. So I'm going to ask each of our mentors to say their name, uh, title, and organization, and one thing that you are particularly good at that people might not know about you.
3: David? Uh, Sure. Hello, everybody. Thanks for getting on the call. Uh, David Perry, uh, EVP of Altera Mountain Company. We're just a little over two years old. Part of that, I was at Aspen Skiing Company for 16 years and then up at Worcester Blackcomb home for 18. Um, so what do I, what would you not know about me? Uh, I'm a pretty, a very avid mountain biker. Now, a lot of us in our business are, so maybe that's not that unique. Uh, but I head to Moab in Utah whenever I
4: possibly can to ride.
2: Awesome, David. Thank you. Amy?
4: Hi, good morning. You'll be able to recognize my voice by the uh, construction going on in the background, so apologies apologies if that's uh, apparent. So I'm Amy O'Ran, and I'm the president and general manager of uh, Woodward Tahoe Soda Springs Resort and Boreal Mountain in California. And prior to this role, I was 25 years at Mount Bachelor in Bend, Oregon, and I think my unique, uh, I'll spill it to this team, so I'm, a, I'm an avid rock climber, um, spent most of my life uh, kind of guiding, climbing on my uh, off-peak off season, and uh, my skill is that I have actually taken conference calls from 23 pitches up in Yosemite, so um, I'm on the ground right now, and uh, yeah, really look forward to getting to know everyone.
2: Awesome, Amy, thank you. Hiram?
5: Uh, my name is Hiram Toll, I am the general manager here at Mount Ashland uh, Ski Area in Southern Oregon. We're a non ski area. And something you wouldn't know about me is I uh, can
2: ride a unicycle,
5: including a six foot one. So,
2: there you go. Wow. Wow. Can you juggle at the same time?
5: No, I'm terrible at juggling, I'm glad you asked.
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, the unicycles pretty impressive, thank you yeah. for sharing that. Um, great, so for our first question we'll we'll stick with the same order for for the for the first question and the next couple as well. But I'd love for you to share a story of a pivotal moment early in your career because you know we're talking to men, mentees who are relatively early on in in their career careers maybe if you could share an experience from early in your career where you solved a problem in an unexpected way. So, you know, why was this important? How did you apply some of the lessons to problem solving and strategic thinking? So uh, David, do you want to kick us off?
3: Oh, sure. Um, thanks. Uh, you know, just before I start the story, I have to say that, you know, strategic thinking slash problem solving is is really what sets people apart in their career career growth, in my opinion. Those that show an ability to, Think strategically and uh, be innovative in solving problems are are going to get ahead of their peers. Um, so I think this is critical importance. Uh, a story. It was uh, this is okay. Early days of Blackcomb Mountain, actually 1985, and Blackcomb was a regional resort at the time, really not on the international scene. Right next door to Whistler Mountain, and uh, struggling, but there was this great terrain up at the top. So the vertical was about 4,000 feet, but there was this place above treeline. That had not been developed yet. It was only hike two terrain, and so the company that owned Blackcomb at the time decided to go and borrow a T-bar in the in the dark of night from a place called Fortress Mountain, Alberta, near Calgary. Put it on a couple of flatbed trucks, uh, stole it basically. But they owned we owned Fortress, so <laughs> and uh, drove it across British Columbia. Showed up at Blackcomb Mountain, and uh, this was in August. And decided to install that T bar at the very top of Blackcomb, uh, up, up to the very pinnacle of the mountain. And uh, I, had literally two months prior to that, had been given my first ever marketing job in the business. I'd been in operations in various roles, and they asked me to be the assistant marketing director. And I knew nothing about marketing, uh, but they gave it to me anyway. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, here's your challenge we need to install this chair uh, before the start of the winter, you need to sell $2 million of seasons passes, um, by, uh, first of October. Otherwise we're going to go bankrupt. So I really was like, Oh my gosh, this is the, the problem of my life and my career. It's on the line right now. Um, so I had to get really creative, uh, and, and look into branding and, you know, in addition to helping build the T-bar, uh, that T-bar took us to a vertical of actually close to one mile from 4,100 feet up to about 5,200 feet. So I I found some help and I decided, okay, we'll call it the Mile High Mountain, pretty obvious. I had never been called that before uh, because it was going to a mile of vertical. And it was the seventh lift that we were building. And in those days, like a lot of ski areas, the lifts are just numbered, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. So this was gonna be the seventh. So I decided to call it Seventh Heaven. And so the Seventh Heaven lift to the Mile High Mountain opening up this glaciated terrain and high alpine terrain turned out to be really memorable branding that really caught on with the public. Um, And it was quite transformational for the mountain. And we, we exceeded our goal. We sold about $3 million of passes uh, by the middle of September, saved the company. Um, But my, my biggest takeaway is that I had to figure out a creative way to present the new addition to the mountain. It was very easy to remember and compelling for the public to get a hold of, uh, and uh, I was fortunate that I hit hit the nail on the head and uh, and Blackcomb uh, you know kept on moving towards great things
2: so that's, that's great story. David. Thank you so much for sharing that story yeah that's really interesting. Um, Amy, can you share a story?
4: yeah, thank you, and um, you know just to to color I think the some of the lens that I look at, to strategic thinking, I think one of the things that I learned early on in my career is when we are looking at you know, a change in business model or something innovative to make sure that we really dedicate the time to step back and to think strategically. You know, when you're in leadership roles, you make so many decisions and I think you get in the habit of sometimes weighing in too quickly and there's been a couple of just pivotal times in my career where I realized that sometimes through the strategic thinking process, we sometimes just jump in too quickly with, with trying to answer the wrong question or not really understanding or using design thinking to ask you know, very clearly, what, what problem are we trying to solve? Because sometimes I think we're trying to we're trying to solve the wrong one, because we haven't spent the right time to understand um, what the challenge really is. So the one of the most memorable in my career, in 2012, uh, we opened Woodward Tahoe, and I don't know how familiar uh, everyone on the call is with Woodward uh, as a brand, but it's an action sports facility and programming brand with a lot of power. Um, and a big youth brand that was pretty new to the scene with snow with skiing and snowboarding and you know that the task that i was really given by powder was let's let's figure out how to create relevance with woodward to the sports of skiing and snowboarding and the resort experience and you know we spent a lot of energy trying to influence our guests to experience the woodward facility as part of their visit and you know, there were so many questions from the guests of what is it and why should I participate and why does this have value to me? And while the first couple years we definitely had incremental successes, we we didn't really get the leverage of the strategy until we changed our approach. Um, we, you know, we spent so much time trying to connect, um, you know, users to an experience that they, they weren't necessarily looking for But when we changed the question to be less of, how do we get more users into Woodward Tahoe to how do we take the best elements of Woodward Tahoe out to every resort touch point that we can possibly find and create relevance to the experience that they're really seeking. And that is when we really got the thing off the ground and created the awareness of what it was and how it added value to the skiing and riding experience. Sorry, that is so loud. I hope that's not, uh, not too much. Um, and at that point, that is when we kind of achieved the visitation and uh, growth goals with Woodward Tahoe. And it was a complete pivot of what problem are we really trying to solve? It wasn't uh, getting people in the building, it was leveraging the strengths of both the Woodward brand and the resort brand to be complementary to each other. And um, that's really the playbook that we are using across our Woodward portfolio, across powder resorts at this point.
2: Thanks so much, Amy. Appreciate that. Um, Hiram, do you want to, can you share a story for us?
5: Yeah, I'd love to. So I started off in the, uh, on the mountain operations side of, of the ski business. So my, um, my story is not nearly as exciting as the other two, but um at Sunday River, where I started, <clears throat> I was in charge of a number of different uh, departments. One of which was transportation. And so, the history before I arrived was that we bought these fancy, what we would call airporter shuttles, or you know, shuttles that are really nice for rolling around in cities on flat ground. And they were just they were getting destroyed. And we we served about 120,000 uh, riders every year. We had a the most slopeside lodging on the east and so we had a lot of people to move and they were constantly going down and impacted guest service. So you know, it's one of those things where you just had to look at, uh, you know, be honest with yourself and say, you know, do people really care that they're in this fancy bus with cloth seats and, um, or, or our school buses, you know, they're built to handle these roads built to uh, to do the job they were, that we needed them to do. And it was really difficult to, um, to convince uh, management that, you know, they, they don't care. They just want to get from the condo to the slopes. And I, I really don't think that they're going to have an issue with it. So um, after after a lot of, uh, uh, you know, conversations about, about that, uh, I was allowed to buy a, a couple of these buses and they were just, you know, they carried more passengers um, and, and people at the end of the day just really didn't care. And so that was just one of those, you know, to, to problem solve, sometimes you have to ask um, the right questions, you know. Um, that's that was talked about in in the earlier uh, talk, and I can't I can't stress enough that you you have the ability to uh, to make change and um, and fix some problems. And and again, in being in mountain operations, something breaks every day. There's a problem pretty much every day, so you're just constantly on your toes mm-hmm. trying to uh, to apply that you know logic and problem solving and strategic thinking. And that was a long range strategic thinking piece because we could have kept pouring money into these fancy buses that were quite frankly about three times the cost of these school buses. And, you know, a nice paint job and, uh, you know, keeping keeping them up and keeping them running was more important than, uh, than having fancy buses.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that. That's really interesting. It's a good segue into our next question too, because we're, you know, we're talking about weighing different options and, you know, what goes into uh, solving a problem. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about problems and how one might reframe them uh, and, and you know, so that you're solving the right problem or solving them creatively or getting people to you know, think in new ways.
0: The PodSAM conversation continues after we thank PodSAM and Summit Series partner, Mountain Guard. How many skier visits are you doing? 5,000, 5 million? I'm gonna guess it's somewhere in between. Specializing exclusively in insuring the ski industry since 1962, Mountain Guard has become the largest rider of ski resort insurance in North America. No matter your size, your resort needs the expertise and experience that Mountain Guard can provide. Head over to mountainguard.com where you'll be able to make quick contact with their eastern or western experts. Customers know them as Tim Barnhorst, Tim Hendrickson, and Bo Adams. www.mountainguard.com
2: so the question is about, how can you tell a, talk about a time when you reframed a problem into, to make it more of an opportunity? And, and how did you connect that to uh, you know, motivating your team, potentially, to pursue strategic solutions? David?
3: Uh, sure. Um, I'm going to paint a picture of uh, when I arrived at Aspen Skiing Company in Aspen in 2002, when I first started there. Uh, and it was much different than it is today. Aspen actually was re- world renowned, but it was uh, it was withering. It, it was it was in decline. Uh, its ebitda was dropping. Uh, it was really it was just an enclave of old rich white guys, and uh, <laughs> some people would argue it still is today, uh, but it, but it's not. And you know, I had introduced the uh, Winter X Games to Aspen uh, for that year in, in early 2002, and brought them to Aspen. And the uh, but the real challenge was that the town was dead. There was no youth there. The attitude was kind of moribund. Uh, there was no energy uh, in the whole community. It was kind of like yesterday's place. And the X Games were the first step, but I, because I'd come from Whistler, my younger brother Doug had, had created the World Ski and Snowboard Festival. I knew how important music was to the fabric of the culture that was, was really taking over, which was the youth action sports culture. And so I proposed that we do a free concert on the Saturday night of the X Games and close off the streets in downtown Aspen to do a street concert. And I was told in no uncertain terms that that was absolutely impossible. Uh, there was bylaws against it and that the city council would never allow it. And I went, oh, OK, well, why is that? And they said, well, they have a it's a noise ordinance. You know, you can't have any sounds above 65 decibels after 4 p.m. And I'm going, Really? <laughs> that seems kind of bizarre. And they said, well, well, I said, why is that? because after skiing, that's when people have naps and I went, Oh my God, it's way further gone than I thought. This place is like maybe <laughs> beyond hope. Um, so I had to go to city council and pitch them on the idea to have a street concert and, uh, and get them excited about it. Luckily I got them to agree on a five Oh vote to do a one-off uh, a special use permit uh, with go over the decibel limit. Closed off the streets, hired an aging punk band at the time called The Offspring, which was even an aging punk band back then, and uh, brought them in. And lo and behold, Saturday night, uh, the uh, we had you know 6, 7, people, from all from all walks of life, turn out into the community, and. It was, you know, the young, young people at the front. It was a mosh pit. You know, the 30-somethings and early 40-somethings with kids on their shoulders were a little bit further back from the stage. And then the 60- and 70-year-olds in their fur headbands thing were very curious. They all came out, too, and they were in the back. And it turned into a, be a rousing success and really, it, I would think, reminded Aspen of what made it great in the first place. Aspen used to be a highly irreverent place and a place counterculture place. Gosh, Hunter S. Thompson ran for sheriff for, gosh, six in Aspen in the 70s. So um, I coined a term. I called it resort Alzheimer's disease. It was where resorts forgot what made them great in the first place over time. And so we really had to reignite the passion in Aspen. And I I look back to that concert and bringing music to the X Games as being a pivotal moment. So that took some sort of creative thinking uh, to solve a very, very deeply rooted problem. Uh, in the resort um, you know but I was able to get the town behind me and as well as the team the operating team and really get excited about it uh, and that was that, that's key by the way <laughs> not just the, your employees or your company but the community that we operated in I had to get the community on board otherwise we're fighting we were fighting an uphill battle uh, so it was really uh, strategic thinking and problem-solving both with, at the community level as well as the operating level uh, to try and change things up.
2: That's great. What an interesting story, David. Thank you. Uh, Amy?
4: Uh, Dave, what a great story. I don't know if I can top bringing a mosh pit to ask them, <laughs> uh, but I can walk you through just a, a recent experience that we've had. We've been in our summer operation for eight years now and uh, a period of really significant growth. Our summer operation, uh, pretty much exclusively consists of our Woodward Tahoe summer camp and uh, we grew very quickly and this last couple of years we, we hit a capacity constraint that, uh, in a, you know, a pretty critical business category and the future growth was really dependent on um, adding new beds or that's the problem at the time that we thought we were solving. You know, we've been ingrained in 50 years of culture that Woodward is camp and, uh, you know, we've challenged ourselves to think more broadly about what Woodward can mean to uh, our guests that are visiting both winter and summer. And, you know, we hit a, a capacity constraint very quickly at year eight in our business. And that the next step was going to be some significant capital investment to add beds. Um, for the overnight camp experience. And if anyone who knows anything about building in California, particularly up here on Donner Summit, uh, it's not cheap, and uh, it's not easy to do. And we we kind of shifted our thinking, uh, really driven by an exercise, um, if you're familiar with the value curve, about understanding what you do really well, and understanding what you don't do as well, and making sure that you're investing in your strengths and we had kind of an eye-opener in going through a strategic process of what we do really well is the action sports experience. And we shifted our thinking from, you know, wanting to and kind of being, you know, self-taught that the growth was going to be determined on the lodging space and the bed space that we had. And in going through the value curve exercise, we really shifted our thinking to how can we, Solve this capacity constraint through other means, and the solution was really developing a roadmap to to evolve the business model to, to be more than a summer camp and to be more than a target audience of you know week long campers that are here, um, you know, for one to four weeks of the summer, and we we created a roadmap that just created infinitely more opportunity than we had scaled in our original business. And we started rolling out this strategy this summer with uh, with broad success. It was both visitation and brand awareness and definitely pivoting our, our op- how we operationalize against this kind of strategic shift. But you know, I think w- the the biggest takeaway for us is we saw a roadmap that had you know incre- incremental growth based on beds space to a model that really were, it's going to be a while until we find the capacity ceiling. Um, you know, it was a, a pretty significant shift in the model, and including the broader leadership team and thought leaders in our company was was really critical um, because this was not a, a, a Minor move, um, so we we were sure to include uh, you know strategic thinkers into the whiteboard sessions that that drove this this business innovation, and uh, you know I think that's a really critical piece to building buy-in, um, and it, it also brought just a, a diversity of thought, and I think that's really critical too when when you're just stuck and you you feel like you're trying to save, solve. The same yeah. problem and again just asking that question of what what problem are we trying to solve and to get diversity of thought to really drive that innovation was was key in this model and we're really excited to see um, you know where this goes in the next couple of years it's going to be it's gonna look like a, a different place here
2: thanks so much Amy
4: Hiram. Uh,
2: yeah so uh, <clears throat> we have
5: definitely had our share of problems here at, at Mount Ashland uh, we don't have uh, making and in the 13-14 season, before I got here, the ski area received about 101 inches of snow, didn't open for a single day, um, so I basically came to hopefully take it off of life support and was delivered 87 inches of snow in my first year, so um, to overcome that problem, um, I brought some of the things that I knew from the east where uh, we literally shoveled snow out of the woods into 50-gallon trash cans ran them down the lift to to build the ramp and uh, carried them to areas where we needed snow to stitch things together. So, you know, we modified a snow cat with a dump bed. We were farming snow out of the parking lot Um, on the West coast. You build lifts about four feet off the the ground. So we had experience in building these uh, loading ramps that basically need to spread an inch of snow over them to, to get them going. And, um, you know, how, how we motivated the team to do that was I, I got out in the trenches with them. I mean, I was out there shoveling with them. And, um, it was completely uh, the opposite of what had been done before, where it was kind of, you know, pack pack close up the tent and, uh, you know, wait for the snow. And so instead of that, we basically hosted parties. We, um, uh, we opened and closed three separate times, which you can imagine is, is pretty challenging. And, and I was just shocked that we didn't lose our entire crew you know, through that time, it was, it was because we motivated them, gave them that passion, um, you know, to provide skiing and riding to our community. And that was, you know, you really got to, you have, you have to lead by example in those, in those exact, you know, in those situations. Um, so we ended up, uh, operating for 38 days. We, uh, we didn't lose a whole bunch of money, uh, versus the year before not opening took out a $750,000 uh, loan to stay afloat. And now we're in really good shape and I've suffered, uh, a, one other uh, fairly bad year where we ended up closing um, and reopening but um, We've got a team that's that's fully behind that that operational change now, which uh, I'm pre- We're pretty proud of because you know, basically we we, we all rallied and, and found a way to get around the, the problem and uh, That's what we do
2: every day in this ski business That's great Hiram. Thank you so much um, now we're going to uh, turn our uh, turn our focus to our mentees to ask some questions. Uh, and we're going to mix up the order for the mentors to respond. We'll go with uh, Amy, then Hiram, then David. And so we have a question now from Alex Drew from Sunday River. Alex, can you ask your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hiram, I just want to let you know that we still use ski buses here. Um, school buses so you were successful but um, my question is how do you balance making a development plan with clear goals and objectives while also understanding that demand and use will shift in the next 5, 10, and 20 years?
4: Yeah that is such a great question and I would lob it back to you saying figure this out because this is definitely a conversation that that we have frequently. You know, I, we're, we're obviously in a time that is pretty defining of our industry. And I think we're all aware of, of the shifts that are happening right now and the adaptation that is needed. And, you know, I definitely can say that, you know, being in California, there, there are a lot of pressures, but I think we are feeling um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of the shifts here are happening first. And I know that the climate change and demographic change is definitely, you know, broadly across the country. But um, the pace of change that's happening here in California is is pretty remarkable. We've had we've had back to back seasons where we had 78 inches of snow, followed by a year we had 810, and then back down to the low 200s. And so, the the adaptations that we have had to make very quickly. Are a big part of our com- our conversation, and I think um, you know the, uh, the the answer to your question is really built into your question of just um, you know having an awareness of the need to have an adaptable, fle- flexible business model, whether it's the business model you're creating or the capital plan that you are putting together, and I think asking the questions very early on of how can this project or this initiative or this capital investment add value across multiple seasons and how can it add value across multiple markets? And I think that is where we have really found a way to, you know, be nimble in addressing emerging markets is that nothing we do is built for one end goal or one end user. We've, Uh, we've cast our net quite a bit bigger when uh, with the addition, I mean, Woodward Tahoe is a great example of just a business adaptation and that, you know, it's never done, it's never done innovating. We we are seeking, uh, you know, relevance with 14 different sport markets and a lot of the facilities that we build have the Mm -hmm. ability to pivot and flex for a different user group at any time. Um, But I think the, Uh, The adaptation question just needs to be built into your strategic process, you know, is this going to be climate change resilient, is it market and demographic resilient? and to ask those questions early on, I think is really critical. It's such a great question.
2: Thanks so much, Amy. Uh, Hiram, do you want to give it a shot?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. I think the key is to have a couple of different plans in the pipeline. I'm, I'm one that always thinks what's the worst thing that can happen. And I start my planning there, um, on through, um, boy, we had a great season. We, We can invest what you got. You got to have a five, 10, 15, 20 year list of, um, those things that you want to do, um, especially based on infrastructure changes, but in terms of programs and, um, you know, the, the changes in, in seasons, the changes in the demographics, Um, you got to be nimble. You just got to be ready to change and be honest that, you know, sometimes we don't always get it right and be humble and just be ready to pull the plug when it doesn't work. Um, We, I call it getting small, you know, when we start to see trends that, boy, this isn't going to be what we thought it was, um, you know, you shrink it down, you find out where, you know, where the problems really lie and then, you know, build, build on that. But if you don't have several plans in the in the pipeline, um, you won't be ready when things don't go the way you think, either good or bad. You know, we always hope it's to the good, but um, you know, I like to have a war plan. You know, if, if it doesn't snow, what's the first thing we're gonna cut? What's the second thing? You know, How do we hunker down and, and get through this? Um, and that kind, of, uh, that kind of forward planning does allow that flexibility because you kind of have a roadmap um, already in front of you.
2: That's great, Aaron. Thank you so much, um, David. Sure. I'm, I'm gonna, great question,
3: by the way. I'm going to build a little bit on what Amy and Hiram have just said. Um, you know, developing plans really that work for today that you can be cert, fairly certain they going to work five or ten years from now. And, and I agree completely with what's been said, is that we're in a really fast-changing business environment right now, and especially in our industry. And, uh, but I think that even though it's fast-changing, it's essential that your team take the time to build a multi-year plan, at least a five-year plan. I've been with the teams that build a ten-year plan, and of course you review those annually with shifts and changes. But that five-year plan would include a capital plan, <clears throat> and you know, and at least so you have a roadmap about where you think you're going to go, and, uh, and and can adjust. And that plan, those multi-year plans, you know, need to be anchored in your vision goals and particularly your strategies you know, I, I view strategy as being multiple year, you know, they apply for many years, they don't change that quickly, at least three years uh, with your core strategies. And if, so if you build a multi-year plan, a five-year plan that's anchored in, in your strategies, uh, there's, there's far more likelihood that they're going to be robust and resilient and they're going to last, te- you know, the test, take the test of time, survive the test of time. Um, the other thing that I think is really critical to involve in, in your strategic thinking and you know, uh, is to make sure that there's a really good understanding of the competitive landscape. Uh, and by that, it's not just what's happening in our industry and what your, your key competitors are doing, but what's happening in the, it, with other trends, uh, you know, the macro trends that are going on, you know, the length of vacations and experiences people are expecting or looking forward to. So researching how the, the competitive landscape and the consumer expectations are shifting and having really solid you know, research and information on that can then inform your strategies, which then informs your five-year plan. So I'm a big fan of doing research on consumer behavior, both within our industry and outside of our industry, so that we can at least use our best, uh, our best knowledge uh, to, to make these plans today that are gonna stand the test of time.
2: I love that, David, thank you. It's like, it sounds like there's a theme emerging around arm yourself with information. Um, to help with problem solving. That's really wonderful. Uh, We're gonna turn now to Evan Kovach from uh, Mountain Creek. Uh, Evan, can you ask your question? Yeah, sure thing. Um, And I apologize again for always being the the guy with the really long question. But anyway, um, by either providing an example or framing it in broader terms, can you reflect on how you balance problem solving when it comes to an issue that may put team culture at odds with financial results? Um, obviously with with no or limited ability to please both sides of that equation. Um, and then kind of a follow- up which may give my opinions on this issue. Um, have you found that enhancing culture could actually be the means to those financial results long term?
4: Yeah, thanks, Evan. Uh, I think there's been you know, I think we can all reflect on so many times in our career where, where we've been at this crossroads, right? Where there's there's an innovation or a shift in business model that is financially driven and may put uh, put your culture on edge. And I think you know from the top, they, when I when we look at these these type of situations, it has to be really clear to everyone that you know you can have the best strategic plan or financial plan in the business and if you don't have the culture to see it through to succeed, then it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And um, you know, the, the Peter Drucker quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast is, is very much uh, in a kind of a driving focus in, in my career. And I, you know, I think it's so clear that everyone understands that our financial success is directly tied to culture and a culture that is open to early adoption is, is really always a benefit. And I think it's really important that we remind ourselves that they cannot be mutually exclusive strategies. Um, and I think that the, the best approach that I found is just clearly articulating the strategy. And it's critical to anticipate the organize, the impacts across the organization of any big shift. Um, I think that's where a lot of plans fail in that, you know, we have a great direction. We have a really strong strategy and we didn't go far enough to one, create the buy-in and then two, to fully understand the dependencies for your strategy to be successful. I think asking the questions of how will this move impact operations, needs for training, uh, how will it impact marketing? How will it impact sales? And I think if your culture understands that they've been a part of the process and that you have looked through a really critical lens of how will this impact blank? And I think, um, you know, there's, it, it's good for your team to know that you've thought about it and you have a plan to address those those changing needs. There's um, there's a tool that I really like to use in these kind of scenarios. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Michael Porter's uh, value chain activity. Um, it's, it's been a critical tool for us when we've made big change. It's a good way to just kind of organize thoughts of, of the dependencies and actions that we need to take to, you know, I, I know buy-in is always a big word when it comes to big initiatives, but um, you know, if if you have buy-in, but you don't have a plan for execution, then it doesn't really mean anything. So I think your team knowing you've thought through the dependencies for their specific place in the organization is so important in making bigger financial moves.
2: Thank you so much, Amy. Uh, Hiram?
5: Hey, Evan. It's a good question, and I think Amy touched on the majority of it, but in my opinion, uh, culture comes first, you know, everything follows after you um, if you take care of your team, the rest pretty much takes care of itself. In in my, uh, my experience, um, setting expectations for your crew and in, in terms of, uh, the fact that there are going to be changes, you know, you want to make them part of those changes, um, and really involving them from the start, um, you know, to get that buy-in, like Amy said, if, if you don't have buy-in, you're going to get resistance, you know, through the entire process. And um, if you involve the team, they're going to let you know um, how that those changes are going to affect them. And then you can challenge them and say, well, you know, we know what the end goal is. We know this is the, you know, this is the point we want to get to. You know, help us get there. Tell me how we can, uh, you know, have a lesser effect on your on your department or your processes. And I think it, it will start to take care of it itself. Um, I can tell you that we have guests that notice that we have incredibly happy employees. You know, everybody here uh, loves their job. Um, we don't all just disappear at the end of the day. We all hang out at the lodge together. And um, that, that kind of family um, you know, feeling and that camaraderie, they'll, they'll go to great lengths for you if you can, if you can nurture that and keep it going. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, you have to be able to, to, to be firm and say, yeah, no, I totally get your concerns about it, but you know, these are the marching orders and, and this is what we really intend to do. You know, can, can, do I have, do I have your commitment and just make sure that you have a shared commitment when you, when you march towards those big, those big changes because they will come.
3: So I'm going to That's jump to this David it, here now, and I'm going to be sort of in resounding agreement with my colleagues um, uh, on, 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 the approach to this. So, you know, if you have a clash between culture and, and your financial uh, pressures, uh, that's a failure of the culture. So I agree that focusing on the culture first is, is essential. And, you know, and culture isn't something that, you know, that's something you build, right? It's really hard to get your arms around culture. You know, it's got so many elements to it. Uh, but I've certainly found over time that if, we have a clear set of values and people actually live those values and use those as filters to make key decisions uh, and everyone buys into those values, then that's a really good beginning of setting up a good culture. Right. So the values should be everywhere and everyone should live them and people should be allowed to call other people out if they're not, if they're violating those values in some way, shape or form. The other thing I think is really critical in building a culture that uh, is going to be successful and, and where the clash doesn't happen, uh, is really one of inclusiveness and being very open, you know, sharing quite deep in the organization. I'm a big fan of going deep into the organization and sharing the business goals, the business challenges, what our strategies are, you know, uh, what our financial uh, situation is and what we're, what we're, what we're aiming for uh, because, you know, and also what we do and then why we do it, you know, give them the why. You know, people are smart, you know, they, they want to understand what's going on. And if they, if the, the employees and the team start to have a stronger understanding of what all of that is with the values and where you're at in your business and your goals and your challenges, uh, they'll start to form a belief around that understanding and, and, and then start to get on board. Um, the other thing that connects to that, you know, I think is very, very important is a balanced view uh, that you share with the employees and build with them actually. and I. A lot of people talk about a three-legged stool uh, in your business. I, I actually talk about a four-legged stool, um, which I think is, is important, and this is pretty, pretty common. But you know, the, the common three legs are called guests, employees, and financial stakeholders, right? Making sure that you're aware and conscious of all three of those legs of the stool at all times. I had a fourth one, and, and you've heard me mention it before, community. So if you're taking care of your guests, you're taking care of the employees, you're conscious of taking care of the financial stakeholders and your community, whatever you define your community as being, if those four legs of the stool are well understood deep into the organization, then all of a sudden the financial challenges are ones that people can start to understand. uh, And the culture actually supports the financial challenge as opposed to opposes them. Uh, Make sense?
2: Fantastic. As the
0: COVID pandemic has unfolded, the team at SAM has continued to ask, what is the future of the mountain resort industry? We do this to keep our sights on what's important, and SAM is more focused than ever on helping make the future bright. Staying informed, connected, and thinking about next steps is of the utmost importance. Check out the SAM Magazine coronavirus update page at saminfo.com and join our weekly huddle to discuss the current situation by visiting saminfo.com huddle. While you're there, consider supporting us as a vital source of information during these trying times by subscribing to the magazine at www.saminfo.com slash subscribe.
2: We have a, a, another question from one of the mentees, uh, Nick Delich from Blue Mountain for this one. So uh, Nick, can you go ahead and ask your question? Hey, good afternoon, everyone.
5: My uh, question is pretty straightforward. Um, what procedures or training do you find to be the most effective at encouraging problem solving on the department manager level rather than furthering problems up the chain of command? Well, for me, it's hands on. You know, it's, you're not sitting people in a room and just feeding them full of uh, PowerPoints. Uh, it's getting them out there and, and showing them, uh, you know, what's expected. What should it look like? smell like, feel like, taste like, and, um, you know, make sure that those procedures are, are well documented uh, so they can go back to it. Um, I have, i found quite often that people have the skills to creatively problem solve, but they've been stifled over the years. You know, uh, good leaders allow people to fail. Good leaders allow people to uh, be innovative and come up with with new and exciting ideas, and not to stifle that because um, pain is the finest teacher. So if you allow them to go out and take some of those risks, um, I, I find that that really does that that impacts them all the way through their career and helps them to understand that that's that's a pretty good pretty good way to go.
3: Um, so David here, um, yeah, problem solving procedures and training. You know. Um, you know, the, the thing to avoid, of course, is having uh, problem-solving be top-down. And, you know, Hiram already said the same thing. If you tell somebody, we have a problem, uh, fix it, you know, and people don't understand the what, why, or where, and they're not bought in, then there's going to be resistance. But if you are able to, you know, go, this, this is going to sound similar to what I've said before, you know, right down to the department level in your company and make sure that, that those teams are involved in in building their department strategies and tactics that support the overall uh, resorts, strategies and tactics. And uh, if they're the teams are involved in building those things, then all of a sudden they realize that they're, they have a stake in the overall game. And so if they've built and feel a part of building their own departmental strategies, it's the f department or it's the lift operation department or whatever it might be, they have their own strategies and tactics that support the overall uh, resort goals and, and everything. And, if they're involved and they participate, then all of a sudden the problem solving uh, is on, on on their shoulders, and they they want it on their shoulders. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no no resistance. So to me, it's actually less about training and more about information sharing and actually building your plans from the department level right on up. Um, so you know, I know that's pretty rote in business books, and and people say to do that, but you really have to take the time. It's very time consuming, and to you know, get a craft, you know, your overall strategy, share them with the departments, go through a facilitated process with each department so they understand their role and then build their own, their own stuff and uh, are really part of the same team.
2: David, Amy?
4: Yeah, I, again, I think this is another question that really comes down to, to culture. And I, you know, I had a, a, a point in my career where I had made a shift to a new division and a new uh, business unit, and um, you know, from from the outset, there was a culture of, of of pride in finding a problem, and you know, it was it was pretty it was pretty evident that that needed to change to a culture of ownership where there's pride in finding a solution and an innovation and. that shift definitely does not happen overnight Um, you know I think just as David and Hiram articulated just clarity of who we are and our values and our ambition is so key you can't just tell people you know think bigger you know be a strategic thinker be a problem solver it takes training and it takes experience and it takes um, some wins and some some losses and I think making sure that you are able to lead, uh, especially developing managers through that process or somebody that is taking a big step in their leadership trajectory because they get more complex um, the deeper you go. And I think, I think giving them some framework because problem solving is definitely not a one size fits all, otherwise none of us would have jobs, right? Um, I think it's, it's good to, to put together a model um, even if the happens, I, I often comes to me with, "Hey, I've got a, I've got an issue. I need you to be aware of. I have a problem. I'm having a hard time solving." And you know, I think it's we all have a tendency to jump in and say, "Well, here's the solution." But you know, walking them through the process so that they can take ownership of the outcome. Um, but making sure that you guide them through that. And um, I think it's good just to, to give them a handful of guiding questions, like go answer these five questions and let's talk about what you're thinking and making sure that you're there to lead them through it so that they do become um, more autonomous in solving problems at their own level. And that, to enculturate it through that type of process is definitely the, the long game.
2: Thanks, Jamie. Um, We have one more question from our mentees, and we'll keep the same order for now, but I'd like to, uh, uh, and it's going to be from uh, Stephen Remillard from Mammoth Mountain, uh, but I'm going to add a level of complexity and and challenge to and and give you a new problem to solve as you're answering this question, which is to keep your responses as brief as you can, maybe about a minute or so, uh, just so we have uh, some time at the end. So uh, Stephen, can you go ahead and ask your question? Uh, That'll be Hiram, David, and Amy.
5: Yeah, thanks. I just want to first say uh, happy Thanksgiving everyone. Hope you have a great holiday with your families. Uh, my question is, how do you prove to your boss or upper management that in order to see different results, you need to try new strategies? Um, I, I think it starts with uh, doing research, you know, find out what those trends are, be able to show some some facts, um, you know, at, at the upper echelon people are, are quite busy and they really need that executive summary. Um, so don't, don't get too lost in the details, but at least be able to show some proof that these things are working. Now, if you're going to innovate beyond what is normal, which I think is probably what you're, you're looking to do, I'd say, uh, baby steps, you know, ask if you can put together a, a pilot program, something small and try to get a little proof of concept going because you know, we're, we're all, just inherently resistant to change. We all fear um, failure and that's kind of a hard thing to, to overcome, especially when you're responsible for an organization you know at the top. Uh, so we, we tend to be hypercritical of those new ideas. It's not that we don't want to, uh, to make those changes, but they have to be well presented. And you know I'm, I'm faced with that right now with uh, I, I have 12 bosses. I work for a board of directors. All of them are uniquely different people. And I'm trying to prove to them that we need to get into summer operations. And, you know, my first pass uh, wasn't well articulated. And so I'm really trying to take the time to, you know, do do some some proof of concept. And we've done a couple of concerts and things like that. And they're starting to open their eyes to it.
3: Uh, Good question, Stephen. Quick answer. So, you know, sometimes bosses at different levels in companies, are, are notorious for this are really stuck in their ways right? and it's been doing the same job for a long time yeah, you know, for years and years and years and they't you know they don't want change and they don't even see the need for change and you know these new these young people with all these ideas come up and like more they're more a pain in the neck than they are a help you know for some people so it's tough it's, it's okay, really tough boomer. <laughs> exactly boomers get out of the way time for all the boomers to quit <laughs> Go to Arizona and live in a trailer park. Um, I would say uh, one, one thing that's important is if you've got a boss that's maybe a little bit difficult is to, you know, make the idea um, for change or a different strategy on something. Make it theirs. You have to be clever to, to involve them and to try and make the idea their own. And, and have them pitch the idea and put them out in front of you. So, because often it's about taking credit for the, for the idea or the decision, and you have to let that go. And you have to think, you know what? This is, this is for the good of everybody. I don't care if I get the credit because you know, the credit will ultimately come to you anyway uh, if you give others. So, it's an old theory, you know, it's, it's one of my values. You know, give respect in order to get respect. So, if you give respect to the boss that's a little bit stuck, uh, let them take the credit, make the idea theirs or partly theirs. Uh, then you have a chance of doing what Hiram talked about: do a pilot project or something, and uh, to prove prove a concept.
2: Thanks, David. And-
4: yeah, I mean, great, great question, and and great answers. And I think just to to double click on that a little bit more. Um, you know, we've we've got a, a pretty, uh, you know, young, innovative culture here, almost to a fault. And I oftentimes my, find myself on the other side of the equation where, how can we slow down and focus? Um, but I think part of that culture has been developed through, uh, you know, I think it's so critical to be able to very clearly articulate your strategy and to do it from end to end, and I, I think some of the more compelling, uh, you know, proposals that have, have come across my desk have really started with the broad look forward, like look way forward. If someone can come to me and say, I've thought about how this might impact uh, our organization 10 years from now, and then reason back to day one, reason back to how we start. Um, but I think if, if I can see that there's Bigger thinking, but there's also steps along the way that give me the confidence that this has been well thought through. You know, you have my ears, and I think the other really compelling conversations I have are when somebody comes to me with with a new, uh, you know, a new line of thought that teaches me something, and I think it's really critical that all of us as leaders open up and are available to learn from the people that report to us and if i can learn something from a conversation that i don't have my eyes to then i'm going to lean in a lot more as well
0: that wraps up this discussion on problem solving and strategic thinking do you have someone on your team who could benefit from listening in do them a favor and forward them this podcast We've been releasing our special huddle mini-series about weathering the COVID-19 pandemic, but we have more Summit Series episodes coming your way. Like, subscribe, and stay in touch at www.saminfo.com. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSAM advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordaev, and thank you for listening to PodSAM.